This week we hear Arjuna speak to the three sages of our fictional land, Millennius, Ananya, Lu Wei, and Iona, in that order. I'm coming up against great challenges in my life. I'm overwhelmed. I've tried and tried, but every time I try, I get knocked down again. I see no way of overcoming my problems. Sometimes I feel like giving up. Tell me, wise ones, how can one overcome such great challenges? One who stands within the forest cannot see the mountain summit. Your problem, Arjuna, is that you see yourself as the answer. You are not the answer. Look beyond yourself to find the answers you seek. Only when you see that you are not the sole agent will you begin to see the way to your goal. You falter, my friend, because you try too hard. You fight and struggle to obtain your desires. First, let go of your desires. In letting go of what you desire, you let go of your anxiety, your fears, anger, and frustration. These are also impediments to finding your way. It is only when you find your peace that you will find your way. Peace? I'm sorry. I don't know how to find peace. It's not that I couldn't achieve my goal, but I have too many enemies. Every time I try, they attack me and overwhelm me. It is as Liu Wei says, you allow your enemies to defeat you because you hate them. If you find your peace, They cannot harm you. Perhaps you don't understand. They've taken so much from me. I can't help but be angry at them when they've taken so much from me. You can't find your peace because you can't give up your anger. You can't give up your anger because you don't love them. Love them? You can't be serious. How can I love those who take away what's so important to me? Have you prayed for them? Pray for my enemies? What am I going to pray for? Their victory? I don't think so. Besides, I'm not a praying man. Remember, the eye is the lamp of the body. If you see darkness in others, your whole body is filled with darkness. If you see light, your world will become light. Prayer is not necessary. Give positive affirmations. What can you affirm for them? Well, okay, but only because you're one of the three sages. Let's see. They're all parents. Let my wish be that they be kind and gracious parents to their children, that their children grow up secure, knowing the blessings of a stable and loving home. Hey, you're right. I actually do hope that they can give their children these blessings. Perhaps I'm not all the way to loving them yet, but it helps me see them in a human light. Arjuna, there is so much you have been unable to see. When you desire your goal so devoutly, you lose sight of all that is around you, especially the humanity of those you disagree with. Give up your desires. Look at others when you meet with them. First listen to them. Gain understanding. Don't assert your will. The three gates of hell are desire, anger, and greed. One must relinquish all three. Find indifference. Treat foe and friend the same. Relinquish the fruit of action. The disciplined one attains perfect peace. The undisciplined remains in bondage to the fruit of their desire. 
Remember, the tree that does not bend in a great wind breaks. The tree that bends with the wind will live to go straight and tall. Arjuna, you think you can accomplish such great things by yourself, but you did not come into this world alone, and you cannot grow without the nourishment of others. Thank you, sages. I've devoted myself to accomplishing my goals to the exclusion of all else. I've seen others as my enemies. I haven't seen others as my brothers and sisters to be nourished and to work with. There's obstacles that need to be overcome. What would I have done without your guidance? Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 51, The Third Axis. As we near the end of our podcast, I thought it would be fitting to include this episode on the third axis. As review, remember, the first axis was the axial age that occurred between about 500 BC and the time of Christ, when most of the world's great religions emerged. This axial age, as it is known, provided the vast majority of our world's inhabitants meaning for their life, a set of moral principles to live by, an understanding of their place in the cosmos, that is, a framework through which to see the world. In the West, Christianity provided these answers throughout the Middle Ages and up until the Enlightenment. I've termed the Enlightenment the second axis. This is my term, but I think it's appropriate because the Enlightenment provided Europeans a new framework, a way of looking at the world, of understanding their place in it, in a new moral foundation to supersede the morality of the Christianity they had inherited from the first axis, which it largely replaced. From the founding of our country, then, to the greatest generation, Americans lived in a world that was a combination of both axis one and axis two thought systems. From the colonial era through the prodigal generation, our country has always had a strong majority of people who have identified as Christian. These Americans have always had a strong conception of where they fit in God's cosmos. In addition to this, our founding fathers were thoroughly steeped in Enlightenment philosophy. A look back at some of the speeches, pamphlets, and founding documents of our revolutionary period are stereotypic statements of Enlightenment philosophy. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to these rights governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, U.S. Declaration of Independence. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America, preamble to the U.S. Constitution. The mind, once enlightened, cannot again become dark. 
Thomas Paine. These Enlightenment values were passed down from one generation to another by parental teaching, cultural memes, and civics classes for about 200 years. Then, in the 1960s, the boomer generation rose up and threw off the chains of decades of belief that the established order was benign. This allowed us to begin to move beyond the racism that had been endemic in our country since its founding, to realize that equal rights for women would be a good thing, and to throw off the feelings of guilt that oppressed single mothers and so many others. This newfound independence came with the disavowing of our parents' beliefs and values. Casting aside a civilization's belief system in one generation can be a dangerous thing when the new generation has no strong belief or moral systems of its own. It is, of course, the boomers' lack of a moral belief system that's led us to embrace independence and freedom to a disproportionate extent, and to become vulnerable for those who would groom us to disbelieve science and want to gain a marginal financial advantage for ourselves by holding on tightly to our carbon economy and in so doing, leaving an earth incapable of sustaining our current population. In short, it's changed us from the baby boomer generation to the prodigal generation. So then, what have we prodigals taught our children? We taught them that it's good to spend beyond our means, and that our federal government should borrow increasing amounts of money in order to pursue whatever government policies that we desire now. We've shown them that it's okay to continue to operate government with staggering annual deficits, even when we know that we are facing a looming cliff within a decade or so that will require a downgrading of America's credit rating, which will lead to a massive worldwide recession or worse. We taught them that taking measures to halt climate change is a bad thing because it would impact our lives today that the impact climate change will have on future generations is irrelevant to us now. The following is taken from the Libertarian Party Statement of Principles. Quote, We hold that all individuals have the right to exercise the sole dominion over their lives and have the right to live in whatever manner they choose, so long as they don't forcibly interfere with the equal right of others to live in whatever manner they choose. Close quote. Check it out. It's on their website. Go to lp.org slash platform and scroll down to Statement of Principles. It's right there. This is astounding. Also check out their picture. A group of mostly, but not all, men, but 100% white and all boomers publicly proclaiming that they feel that they have the right to interfere with your life because that's their entitlement. Whether it's their right to deny younger generations to have their standard of living because they choose to saddle the younger generations with crushing debt because they want yet another tax cut, bequeath them a planet that will not be able to provide anything like the current world's standard of living due to environmental disasters, caused by excessive warming, or whatever they want, so long as they don't use force, 
to destroy the environment or to pass on crushing debt. It's all their entitlement. This is an astounding statement that comes from rejecting their parents' belief system and having nothing to replace it with. This is the Libertarian Party. Admittedly, they're very much a minority. I single them out only because they were brave enough to put this online. The same philosophy applies to all neoconservatives, and much of it, at least the fiscal part, to Democrats as well. At this point, I hear evangelical Christians objecting. But there are many of us that still believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We've not rejected our parents' belief and still embrace their traditional values. This is false and very deceptive. Donald Trump won his presidency with the strong support of evangelical voters. Evangelical leaders have very strongly embraced him, and in a neoconservative town near where I live, I can still see evangelicals driving their cars with another Christian for Trump bumper stickers. This is a man whose first wife publicly accused him of rape, who makes no pretense about his serial adultery, who has bragged about grabbing women by their genitals, quote, because I can, and has made statements supporting white supremacists. His belief and character can't be squared with the traditional Christian beliefs in any way. The only way that evangelical Christians can support Trump is to reject the importance of Christian character and to accept conduct that their parents would have called blatantly unchristian. A man with the same character traits, who bragged about doing the things that Trump does, could never have gained the Christian vote in decades past. Prodigals across the spectrum have rejected their parents' values, and too few of us in the prodigal generation can claim to hold a set of values that would make the world a better place should they be adopted universally. What are axials to do then? If traditional values and beliefs have been rejected and their parents don't have a strong belief system for them to adopt as their own, what are they to believe in? I call this episode The Third Axis because it's my belief that we're on the verge of another blossoming of thought. The first axis provided almost all the world's great religions as a framework through which people could see and understand the world. When societies had grown and matured sufficiently, people began questioning the belief systems of their parents, and the Enlightenment was born, what I've been calling the second axis as it led to a complete revision of what people had previously believed. Now our current society, and the world as a whole, is on the verge of severe financial and environmental meltdowns. We prodigals are about ready to step aside and bequeath this world to the axial generations. Yet we are leaving them no organized system of thought, responsible religious tradition, or set of values sufficient to handle the change that they'll be able to manage. What will the response of the axials be? Will they be lost generations, adrift without any moral foundation, completely unprepared to address the challenges they'll face? Here's my take. I think I've been upfront about my agenda in this podcast. I want people to wake up to the dangers of what's ahead. There's another side, however, that deserves at least a mention here. 
baby boomers have had a bad rap in this podcast. I have no choice. In evaluating why humanity will face the problems that it'll face in the century to come, one has no choice but to point the finger at those who've made the decisions that have brought us to this point. That is, of course, us boomers. That is, the prodigal generation. But our purpose here at Nero's Fiddle is not to judge. We've learned that in studying history, it's crucial not to judge, but to approach history with a sense of curiosity. Only in this way can you have the unbiased mindset that allows you to accurately understand the threads of history that will help us understand where the consequences of our current choices are likely to take us. Judging is done with the midbrain, that is, the limbic emotions. Sadly, this has become the norm for American 21st century consumers of CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and far too many, quote, news organizations. Judging others gives us a self-indulgent gratification similar to the gratification experienced in throwing an angry temper tantrum. It has become a primary personality trait of the prodigal personality, and we must stop it if we're going to have the insight necessary to overcome the twofold challenge that will come with America's fiscal problems and accelerating climate change in a time of increasing negative feedback loops. Such a judgmental approach to others who believe differently than we do only serves to perpetuate the in-group-out-group dichotomy that it's so important that we finally overcome. Shows like Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow have convinced far too many people that other Americans are their enemy. But Americans are not the enemy. We have to get over this in-group-out-group paradigm, especially when it comes to Americans considering other Americans the enemy. Axials, then, have two choices as they will face their fiscal and environmental challenges in the coming years. They can either continue as their parents have and navigate their futures with no substantial philosophy or worldview that will guide their way, or there will emerge intellectual and perhaps spiritual leaders among the axials that will point the way toward new philosophies, worldviews, and moral codes that not only fit the new ethos of the 21st century, but will point the way toward dealing with the challenges that their parents have left them. Every generation has its thinkers and intellectuals. The prodigals have had them. But being a generation that is self-oriented, there is no one who will be read in 50 years. Too many of them are like Robert Novak, who makes a religion out of selfishness. There are three reasons I think great thinkers will rise up from the axial generations. The first is obvious. The times call for them. Intellectuals will grow up, look around, and not see worldviews that help them cope with the crises that are headed their way. They will naturally begin writing about these issues and adopting philosophies in response to them. That's what intellectuals do. It's what they live for. The second is that it's the way history works. As I've said, our species has always been sadly lacking in first-class minds. Minds that can rethink reality and come up with new and unique ways of seeing the world. Something more enlightening than a Heaven's Gate worldview. Rene Descartes published his Discourse on Method 
1637. Immanuel Kant published his Critique of Pure Reason in 1781. Call it a century and a half, more or less, to find enough first-class minds to create a new philosophical framework through which Westerners could view the world. The axial generations are just coming into their own. Already, we've seen Tanahasi Coates' paradigm-busting book on race, Between the World and Me. To say the axial generations lack great thinkers would be like saying the second axis had no great thinkers after Descartes wrote his Discourse on Method. Give them time. They're finding their stride. Finally, and most important, the axials have already shown that their interests and beliefs differ from their parents. The prodigal ethos has always been about individualism. Their obsessive interest in me has led them to glorify their own independence and freedom from being controlled by anyone else. Their belief was that it was personal determination, grit, and perseverance that determine one's fate. Both the Millennials and Gen Z have shown a communitarian ethos that's foreign to their parents' way of thinking. Causes that are widely espoused by axials, such as adopting health care for all, making college education free, and the Green New Deal, show their belief that we're all in this together and that we can succeed individually when we band together in community. There are already many people writing about this stuff, though no one has yet come to the fore and captivated a new generation with their new philosophy. Yet they have not fully come to grips with the twin crises that they will inevitably face. As they do, I believe intellectual leaders will rise up and begin to change thinking on a mass scale. What will such a philosophy be? This is, of course, impossible to say and it's not my place, as a prodigal, to tell the axials what they should be believing. Still, as a student of history, I can't help but speculate about broad outlines. The place to begin is always, what does history tell us? American history answers this clearly. The first administration, George Washington's, was largely Federalist. That is, they believed in stronger federal government. Many disagreed with this and favored states' rights. And following George Washington, the Jeffersonians came into power, advocating weaker federal government and allowing states to retain greater power. Such sentiments waxed and waned, and then a populist came on the scene, and Andrew Jackson was elected in 1829. Many loved his populist tendencies, and he was elected to two terms. Jackson's belief in populism, however, was largely limited to white males. He was highly racist, pursued ruthless inhumane policies against Native Americans, was a slave owner, and strongly supported slavery. Jackson's support of slavery and those that followed him stoked the fires of abolitionism. The abolitionist movement grew and led to a new generation in the North to elect Abraham Lincoln which ultimately led to the Civil War and the abolition of slavery. Following the Civil War, President Ulysses S. Grant followed a pro-business policy that helped promote industrialization of America and led us to the Gilded Age. 
The lack of worker protection in the Gilded Age, in turn, led us to a concern for workers by the children of the Gilded Generation, and they ushered in the Progressive Era, in which workers were given substantial rights and protections. In the first two-thirds of the 20th century, the U.S. suffered through a Great Depression, two world wars, and the Korean War. The conservative pro-business generations that grew out of these trials raised a generation that didn't know their struggles. This generation grew up liberal and overcame what they saw as their parents, hypocritical racism, etc. And so it goes. When one generation becomes too extreme in its beliefs or policies, the reaction of the next generation is not to continue their perceived failures, but to change course. So it will likely be with the axials. They have shown us their direction. Their instincts are to chart a communitarian course. They care about each other and are comforted, in turn, by the thought that they will be cared about. My generation, the prodigals, overcame segregation, but was never able to overcome the more subtle form of racism in which we secretly believe that those of us who look different somehow are different. The effect that this has had is to feel that they're not accepted as white people are accepted, that they are viewed as somehow inferior. I don't see this among the axials. It turns out that desegregation has worked. When children grow up with other races, they see these other races as their in-group. I don't think it's coincidence that the BLM movement has become a mass movement as the axials are coming into political prominence. I don't think that it'll be races that will be the in-group, out-group divide. What will the divide be, then? It'll be up to the axials to tell us whether we're finally ready to overcome the in-group, out-group dichotomy and way of looking at the world. There's no question about who poses the greatest threat to axials, then. We prodigals have told the Axis that we will continue running ever greater deficits and will not make the meaningful changes that would need to be made in order to stop climate change. Axials have grown up knowing that they're connected with virtually anyone around the globe that they want to be connected with. Now that the overwhelming threat is not to one nation, but to all humanity, we're likely to see for the first time in history the belief that at least one generation of humans are all connected. This, I suspect, will be the biggest axis of all. Am I right? Will there be a cohort of thinkers that will provide a new framework through which future generations will see the world? As we've noted, the first axis took 500 years or so. The second axis, about 150. Are we going to have to wait that long to see if I'm right, and we're about to enter a third axis? On the one hand, as I've said, the world just doesn't typically have all that many first-class minds, so it's possible that no one may come along to light our way. On the other hand, we just don't have any time to waste. 
and extraordinary times create extraordinary people. A refusal to address climate change in a meaningful way to date means that the slower, incremental changes that we could have made to our carbon infrastructure when scientists first brought the issue to our attention are no longer an option for us. The change we need is on us now. I know that I could be wrong. The prodigal generation has been groomed by the fossil fuel interests for many years now. It's radicalized, organized, and militant about its refusal to convert to a green economy. However misguided, it has heard its call. Not so the Axials, at least not yet. This isn't a fight between two equally matched opponents giving it all in an equal battle. This is a fight of one much smaller, but much more radicalized and militant opponent, the Prodigals, against a far larger and potentially far stronger opponent, the Axials and all their allies in the Prodigal generation. That, again, has not heard their call yet. Should they hear their call, there will be no contest. The future is for the Axials to shape as they will. But they have yet to rise to the call. If not, they'll get the post-apocalyptic runaway greenhouse future that the prodigals are determined to bequeath to them. What you notice about history is that it tends to move in punctuated equilibrium. All of Western civilization saw the cosmos through the lens of Christianity for almost two millennia. Then, boom, there was the second axis, and we saw the world through the secular Enlightenment framework. Okay, that may have taken 150 years, but we got two things going for us now. One is the post-internet communication revolution, in which change happens so much faster than it ever did before. The second is that we have no choice. We've run out of time. Martin Luther King spoke about the fierce urgency of now. Now has never been more urgent than at this moment in history. All future generations are counting on what the Axials do at this moment in history. And what will this axis, this change in the course of history, look like? Of course it'll mean that the world will turn to a non-carbon-based economy in order to avoid the prodigal apocalypse. But it will be much more than that. In order to defeat the pro-climate change, carbon-based economy forces of the prodigal generation, the Axials will have to get very organized and fight even harder than the Prodigals. Should they do this, when they do this, they'll come together and organize. As they do this, they'll assert their will. In the process of pressing the change to a green economy, their personality will come through. And what is that personality? What will a world shaped by the Axials look like? For that, Tune in next week for our final episode. Your read this week is Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming, edited by Paul Hawken. Do you ever feel like we've gone too far, that there's nothing we can do to stop climate change? This is your book, an amazingly comprehensive book that provides a step-by-step guide to all those things we can do to reverse our carbon-based economy. Enjoy. See you next week. Special thanks this week to our voice actors. The part of Lou Wei was played by Evan Hempstead.
The part of Iona was played by my wife and collaborator, Alice Barnes-Brown. And the part of Ananya was played by Katya Horde. 